stop the practice of putting Bibles in the chairs, by the way, because the scripture is here. If you ever want to get a Bible, we'll have them out there, and you just kind of grab one and we'll wait in the morning. Okay? Uh, let's go ahead and read Matthew 6, 19-24, and we will be focusing on the bolded section at the very end of it. These are the words of Christ. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and whether, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Here's our section of the no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. Well, today was an exciting time in my life. I did something this morning that I never have done before. I bought a Powerball lotto ticket. Here it is, right here. Powerball. I've never played the Powerball before. Probably will never pay it again, play it again, but here it is. I went in there, I bought a Powerball lotto ticket. Now, why would that be? Well, I'm going to talk to you a little bit. I don't know if you heard the story of Don Lawson, who two weeks ago won a Powerball, uh, and he got $337 million from winning the Powerball. So I went in, I got this Powerball thing, and, and I asked, you know, how much, how much is available? You know, what's the prize? And she said, $19 million. And I, I said, $19 million? She goes, no, no, no. $90 million. So, 04-22-31, this is it, folks, and the winning ticket, I can feel it. You know, it's interesting about the lottery, and, you know, they've documented cases like this guy, Donald Lawson, who said he won 337. He took a lump sum, by the way, of 224 million. I think that was a huge mistake. I mean, he's, he's lost a lot of money there. But he says, I'm a millionaire, but I still go to McDonald's. I don't like filet mignon or lobster. This isn't going to change my life. <laughs> the independent news, uh, newspaper in Britain did a study of 30 uh, millionaires who had won the lottery and what was going on in their life, you know, five, ten years later. Very interesting because two weeks ago, this, this mic, by the way, is coming in and out, so my apologies. Uh, details emerged about the death of Keith Goh, a former baker who had won $90 million in the British Lottery five years ago. He died earlier this year from a heart attack brought on by stress and alcohol abuse. He had separated from his wife of 27 years and mostly frittered away his fortune. Goh said last year that he had turned a drink out of boredom and warned people to never buy a lottery ticket. Without routine in my life, I started to spend and spend and spend. A similar fate befell Jack Whittaker when he won $315 million on the American Powerball. He soon found himself the target of thieves, lawsuits, and harassment. His granddaughter, Brandy, who he had given a $4,000 a week allowance, died of a drug overdose. And Whittaker turned to drink as he lamented the Powerball curse. One could say that Whittaker was extremely unlucky, but then you have the story of Michael Carroll, the English dustman, I know what a dustman, by the way, is. I like the name. I'd like to be a dustman. I'm a dusting things, I guess. I don't know. Michael Carroll, the English dustman, who won 9.7 million pounds in 2002. 
who could be said as the architect of his own downfall, because his winnings made him miserable. Carroll was labeled the Lotto Lout after being jailed for cocaine offenses and being slapped with antisocial behaviors. His wife left him and took their daughter, uh, and he's never been the same since. Psychologist Stephen Danish at Virginia Commonwealth University made a study of the impact uh, instant wealth has on people. And he found that the dream you have about winning may be better than the actuality of winning. It's a hedonistic treadmill, he said. Once you've experienced the euphoria of winning the lottery, it can be difficult to find joy in the little things. Well, many of us have been swept up in the uh, desire to acquire. You know, what would happen to you if all of a sudden you won the lottery and you had this winning ticket as I do? What would happen if all of a sudden your life changed, if all of a sudden you had instant wealth, as much as you could possibly occur, uh, have? You know, in America, we really do believe that money is the answer. And so we spend a lot of time trying to acquire, trying to build up our fortunes. Really, that's why we're called consumers. Our desire is to consume and consume. And Jesus understands the relationship between God and money. And so he makes this comment that no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted and despise the other. So there's something about mastery that's dealing with money and God. For both tend to mastery. If you desire one, you will not desire the other. And so the question is, how can we deal with money and riches if they ever come to us, or even in our poverty? The answer is simply this, that we can only be free from the tyranny of things when we bow to the Lordship of Christ. We could only put money in its proper place and not be captivated by it when we put Christ in his proper place. We're going to look at three specific sections in this, uh, in this little passage here. Number one, we need to talk about the reality of service. The reality of service. Number two, we're going to talk about the challenge of service. And then finally, number three, we're going to talk about the suffering servant. Well, let's look at the reality of service. We see in the scripture that Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You know, it's very interesting the way he said that. He didn't say no one should serve two masters. He didn't say no one must serve two masters. He said no one can serve two masters. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two points I want to draw out. The first is the comment of serving. Because Jesus is trying to tell us that we are servants. You may say to yourself, not me, I'm not a servant. No, that's not true, because Jesus is actually using the phrase here about serving in the Greek as duleo, which means slavery. No one can be a slave to two things. Now, we all understand the difference between an employee and a slave, don't we? Employee goes and takes a job, is compensated for it. If they don't like the way they're being treated, they can go and find another job. But a slave is totally different. A slave, whether it's because of poverty, whether it's because of warfare, a slave, a person has become a slave, and they are bound to that person. What that person says, they do. What that person doesn't say, they do. And so we see that this isn't something that we can control. Rather, we are servants. We will be slaves of something. Now, why is that? Why do we tend to slavery and servitude to something? The reason is because we are worshiping creatures. Our value is derived 
It's not inherent in itself. If you want to know that this is true, that we really are worshiping creatures, all you need to do is go to an NFL football game. If you want to see some worship, go to a stadium on a Sunday. Go to a rock concert. Go to a political rally. And we see worship, worshiping, identifying with something, whether it's a music group, a group at a lunch table. You know, it's interesting that even folks that say, I don't want to be a part of a group and dress in black and stuff, they're part of a group. They're part of a group that doesn't want to be a part of a group. We always worship something. We always tie into something. So the question is not whether we will be a servant. The question is what we will be a servant of. But there's a second thing that Jesus shows here. Because he says no one can serve two masters. In other words, not only are we are a servant, but we're an exclusive servant. We have an exclusivity. As we all understand, a slave only has one master. A slave doesn't have two masters. Indeed, there's a dichotomy between serving one master and serving another. Jesus says that he will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. These words, hate and love, in the ancient Near Eastern, Eastern you would use that phrase when you were explaining choose or not choose. Okay, you'll choose one and not choose the other. They would say hate and love. In other words, you've got to make a choice, one or the other. And then Jesus says, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. This word devoted in the Greek is a very interesting word. It means, uh, in its literal sense, to adhere to or to stick to. You ever heard that phrase when you're glomming onto someone? I asked my son about this. He's like, what's glom, Dad? Has anyone heard about glom? Okay, thank you. I thought it was crazy there. It's literally to stick to something, like Velcro, to grab and to hold on. And to despise is literally, in a, in a, it's a pecuniary term. It's a financial term that means to count as of no value. Or in a moral sense, to say this person has no value to me. See, there's a split. It's almost like there's a scale. You adhere to one, the other one goes down, and vice versa. You know, it was Paul that said, don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. See, the problem is this. If you actually try to serve two masters simultaneously, you end up neurotic. There's a neurosis because we weren't designed that way, being pulled in too many different directions. Now the question is this, what, what if I was to just throw off my shackles? What if I was to free myself from servitude? I didn't say I wanted to be a servant. The reality is if we throw off our shackles from one thing, they will instantly connect to another. See, this was Satan's argument in the beginning, wasn't it? You don't have to obey God. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You can throw off the shackles. You can be your own master. And sure enough, when they took the fruit, the shackles went off of God and they went on to Satan. See, we have to choose who we will serve. It's an all or nothing investment strategy. It's like a roulette wheel where you've got to choose red or black. And then you spin and you see what you come up with. There's an interesting phenomenon in biology in the world of something called symbiotic relationships. 
know if you've ever heard of symbiotic. The word literally means with life. With life. And there are three different types of symbiotic relationships. One is called commensualism, which means that one takes the resources from another, but this person, this thing is not harmed. So for instance, when army ants come through and they kill something, the birds are flying around looking for what they kill, but they're not hurting the ants. It's a commensualistic relationship. The second is mutualism, where two organisms come together and they help each other, they benefit. Can anyone see Finding Nemo, you know, the clownfish and the anemone? That's a perfect example of mutualism. But the final is parasitism. And parasitism is where an organism goes and attaches itself, adheres to a host, looking to take resources from it, and the other thing is harmed. See, we're the same thing, looking for something to adhere to, seeking our value in something else. But the problem is if we seek something and adhere to it that actually takes our life, we move away from being the parasite and move into being the prey itself. There was a guy that came into my office on Thursday. You know, we have sort of Church of the Redeemer out there in the placard, and every now and then people stop by. So this guy stopped by, we'll call him Matt. And Matt comes in and he sits down and he says, hey, can I, can I have a ride? Hey, can I have a ride? You know, he's got a bag, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I said, well, where, where are you living? He said, oh, I just live a couple blocks away. Somebody said, well, why do you need a ride? So I'm tired. You're tired because you need a ride. Okay. So he said, I got to go somewhere and I'll, I'll come back. I said, that's fine. So he goes somewhere and he comes back, knocks on my door, and there he is, and he's holding a big tumbler that has liquid in it. I said, what do you got there? He said, apple juice. And I said, can I sniff it? He kind of held it. It was a big tumbler of beer. He's asking for a ride, holding a beer. You know, I think he maybe wanted me to take him to dinner or something. I don't know. I thought he was a pastor, but apparently I'm a, a taxi cab driver. And so I told him, I, I'm not going to take you home. It's a couple of blocks. But I will go buy you something at 7-Eleven. So this guy didn't, I mean, he was very sharp or whatever. And as we walked over there, I started to talk to him about what was in that cup. And having had enough experience, I started to talk to him about his dependence on alcohol. And he said to me, like all people who said to me who were denying, I can control this. I choose whether to do this or not. I can put it down anytime I want. But the reality was this guy was in the grip of the bottle. He was an alcoholic and it was consuming him. And he had nothing to give anymore, so it was all take, take, take. Preying on other people get resources, get rides, to get money. His life was a prisoner, shackled to the thing he had adhered to, which was alcohol. See, the fact of the matter is we too have to realize that we are a slave, a servant to something. And we see the symptoms, whether it's a baseball team that we root for, or a band, or anything else. Maybe you long for beauty. That's your shackles, you know. You look at the fashion magazines. You spend a fortune on makeup and clothes, and you envy the beautiful, and you're sad when you look in the mirror because you do not measure up to what you think God has called you to be. Maybe your shackles are being popular. You want to sit at the right place. You want to live in the right neighborhood. 
You want to drive the right car and be invited to the right parties. And you obsess on it and think on it, and there's nothing that you can do about it because you're drawn to it. You see, we wait on something hand and foot, whether we want to admit it or not. And we don't own it. It owns us. When it tells us to jump, we say, how high? When it says to get up and go get me something, we go right away. You know, we have to understand that we are servants because one of the worst things about being a servant is not knowing that you are. But we have to also understand that we're exclusive servants. There's something at the top that we adhere to that gives us glory and honor and meaning and love. So what is it for you? You know, every master has a price. Every master will take all. If I have life in it and it's the wrong master, it will take life from me. But here's the exciting thing. See, if we were designed to be a servant, a slave or something, then that means that there's something out there waiting for us that we fit with perfectly. If we were designed to be this way, then we were designed to fit with something. Kind of like Cinderella and the slipper. And so the exciting thing is we need to take time and to examine what is that thing? Because otherwise there's no way to be free from the tyranny of things. Well, we've talked about the reality of service, that we're all servants. Next I want to talk about the challenge of service. Jesus sums it up for us. It's really nice. He kind of puts it in a package for us. And he says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Some translations keep the old Aramaic term, which is mammon. Some, I don't know, even in your Bible, some of you have mammon. And mammon back then referred to one's possessions, one's wealth, most commonly one's money, and one's uh, uh, lifestyle, all the things that a person possessed. But the truth of the matter is, the word mammon actually is a little bit bigger than that. Because mammon is, is derived from the Hebrew word aman, which means to trust. So mammon is something that you trust in. So it could be not only a worldly riches, it could be status, could be reputation, could be your children, could be anything that you trust in. So the reality is mammon at its heart is spiritual. It's something that we trust in. But Jesus here is focusing not only on, he's focusing on the heart, he's focusing on money in particular. Because the love of money, as we know, is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, why does Jesus spend so much time making this dichotomy between God and money? Because money is inherently valuable to the world. We're very familiar with this in the United States. There's a phenomenon that has sort of sprang up in the last 20 years called mini-storage. Mini-storage industry, it didn't even exist. But mini-storage is basically a facility when you have run out of room in your own house, you buy mini storage, and then you go ahead and put it in there. You know, there are 58,000 storage facilities worldwide, and 46,000 of them are located in the United States. The average American consumes 25 tons of raw materials every year. We are consumers. I think the reason why Jesus focuses on money is because money has a godlike brings us glory and fame. It can bring us beauty. It certainly can bring us safety. It can fight off the fear of uncertainty that is around us. It can be our fortress and our protector. And finally, 
Our hope is that it can make us immortal. It can make us younger and fitter and healthier and somehow stave off that thing that we know is out there lurking in the background. See, there's something about God and money that leads to mastery. See, either if we serve money, God is taken out of the picture or relegated to a servant. Or if we serve God, the money becomes the servant of Him. If one, then the other. You'll either love one and be devoted to it or hate one and despise the other. And when you have a lot of money, it's challenging. In fact, Jesus said how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now keep in mind, Jesus is not saying money is bad. But He is saying its tendency to grab a hold on the human heart is a challenge. I don't know if you've heard about John D. Rockefeller, who made uh, his fortune in the early 1900s with Standard Oil Company. At one time, everyone pretty much says that this was the richest man that's ever lived in America. Bill Gates here, Rockefeller here. $392 billion if you go ahead and transpose his wealth adjusted for inflation. They once asked Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And Rockefeller simply said, just a little more. I can't think of any uh, more picture that shows this issue between God and money than Judas and Jesus. Remember Judas, one of the disciples, one of the twelve, who looked like everybody else, but acted very differently. John 12, 6 says, Judas Iscariot was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And of course we know at the very end, Judas walks in and he says, What will you give me to betray Christ? And they counted out 30 pieces of silver. And at the proper time, Judas led the soldiers to Jesus and betrayed him with a kiss. It's interesting that none of the other disciples saw it. But Jesus clearly saw it. See, Judas was the poster boy for this verse, 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You know, I thought to myself, how could Jesus, knowing that this man was a thief, put him in charge of the money? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Imagine if you had a manager and you discovered they were stealing from you. You would cut them off right away, wouldn't you? Because your fortune is going away. I think the reason that Jesus made this guy uh, the thief, the handler of the money bags, is he wanted to show that money was not his God. That God could take care of him. And something as simple as a thief would not stand in between God's care of him. See, he was modeling it for us. And so we have to examine what pull does money have on my life. There was a time several years ago when I actually was not a pastor. I used to run a car wash company. Isn't that a neat a job change, by the way? A car wash company to a pastor. There's a washing element in both of them. The exterior of a vehicle, you know, all right, let's run with it. Well, anyways, we, we, uh, I, I ran this company and it was one of those things where it had several tunnels and you could go in any time you wanted and so they'd pull up to this kiosk which cost about $25,000, and they'd punch in what they wanted, and they'd go on in. Well, we had some employees that discovered a glitch in the system, that if you put in a $20 bill, and you punched a certain code, 
and uh, like you were buying something, but you stop the process and ask for a refund, it would give you back your money and would also give you 20 uh, gold dollar points because that's how we made change. And so they discovered the goose that lays the golden eggs. And they were putting the bill in, getting the money. Putting the bill in, getting the money. And so we, you know, we had a closed camera system and we did our audits and we realized that something was wrong. And we watched and we saw who it was. And so we brought in these two guys. One of them was, he was a great guy. I mean, he was a, he was a loyal worker. He'd been with us. He was trying to move forward in the world. Wasn't like him. The other guy definitely. But this guy wasn't like him. And as he sat there before us, and I challenged him. And at first he denied it, so on and so on. And at a certain point, he began to break down. Because he understood that he had changed his life, his integrity for money. He had decided that this will be my master. Have you bought into the lie about money that changes everything? Have you bought into the lie that money is enough? What would others say if they looked into your heart and into your life? What do you think about worry about? What do you envy other people who have money? Do you look down upon people that don't? Are you constructing a fortress dollar by dollar that will protect you? And so your hand is so tight that you never give away misfortune. See, truth of the matter, folks, is you're not mastering your money. It's mastering and many of us, as Christians, say we want Jesus too. We want to add the spiritual element to our investment portfolio. But the truth of the matter is, and you know there are churches that preach that. Hey, if you trust in Jesus, everything's going to be better for you. That is not the gospel. That's frankly heresy. If you're coming to Jesus because Jesus is going to make you, give you a life, that's idolatry. But the question is, we have to make a decision. Will we be open-handed with our money or not? Will we give it to Him or not? See, you may be saying to myself, Carlos, I don't know that I can do that. Because what if God calls me to be a missionary? What if God calls me to give all my money away and to head over to some country and to spend my life over there? I'm not saying that God is going to call you to do that if you trusted Him. Probably for most of you, you're not. But I'm not saying He's not. See, we have to make a decision. What is the God of our life? See, Jesus wants us and our money. Because money is part of us. Not because He needs it, but He wants us. And so money is a test. Whether you have a lot of it, will it consume your heart? Or with whether you have a little of it, can I be content with God alone? Because the reality is this, my friend, that if we trust God, He can handle our needs. Jesus never claimed to bless our lifestyle, but He did claim that He would bless our life. You know, true peace is not when our bank account is full and everything's firing on eight cylinders. True peace is when your world is caving around you and you can still put your head on the pillow and sleep at night. Because you know that God will meet all of these according to His glorious riches. And so we must examine ourselves. 
Let me give you a handy little acrostic if you want to do an analysis of your own heart. I call it trust. Number one, T, take a personal inventory. Take the time to look at your life and your possessions and the things you value most. R, recognize God as your source. T, take an inventory. R, recognize God as your source. You are the one who can take care of my needs, and so I will look to you and not to things. You understand God's principles. You want to know how to manage money? You don't need to go any further than this. Right here, the scriptures tell us how to manage the money that we steward for God. So take a personal inventory, recognize God as your source, understand God's principles. S, surrender everything to God. Write the check. Turn it over to Him. It's His. He gives it back to you, but it belongs to Him. And you spend it in the way that He asks you. And finally, T, test God's promises. You know, it's not wrong to put God to the test in what He has said, as long as we interpret it correctly, because God is faithful. But you'll never know that God is faithful until you have to have faith in Him. The only way you can do that is when you decide to open your hand of your money and to close it on Christ. Well, this brings me to my last point. We talked about the reality of service, the exclusivity of service. Finally, I want to talk about the suffering servant. You know, when the disciples heard some of this stuff, they would say to Jesus, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Frankly, I agree with it. You know, it's either easy to say this thing as I'm up in the pulpit speaking at you, but it's harder to do it. How can we be free from slavery to our things? The reality is what is impossible with man is possible with God. It was very interesting. I was working on this sermon when I was at my desk, and my eyes caught a coin that was on my desk. So I grabbed it, and lo and behold, here are the words, in God we trust. I found this was very interesting. In fact, I started grabbing other coins, and there it was again, in God we trust. I started grabbing money, and lo and behold, in God we trust, $5 bills, $10 bills, $100 bills, in God we trust. It's on everything. See, in 1908, there was a declaration by Congress that in God we trust would be on every single piece of currency. And so it has been so since, uh, uh, well, since 1938, every single piece of currency. Why is that? Remember Jesus, when someone held up a coin to him, and they said, well, you know, what do you say about paying taxes to Caesar? He said, whose inscription is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. So give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. And so I ask you, whose inscription is on our money? In God we trust. Give to God what is God's. See, we have to make a decision who we trust with our money. The answer is right on the coin. We simply need to obey it. So how do we trust on God? We depend on Jesus to open our hand. The only way we can do this is because Christ gives us the power and he gives us the example. Because the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, came into the world as a poor son of a carpenter and a teenage woman. He was poor in finances. 
Records seem to indicate that his father died while he was young. He raised himself as a lowly carpenter. You know, when a king comes to a country, he sets himself up in splendor. And yet the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Very interesting that at the end of Jesus' life, the only things that he had were his clothes, which were gambled away by the soldiers. See, Jesus was poor in money, but he was also poor in spirit. He humbled himself, so much so that many did not even recognize him. Because Jesus came as the suffering servant. For he said, even the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus not only gave up his power, Jesus not only humbled himself, Jesus did not only live this life of poverty, Jesus gave something infinitely more valuable. Because Jesus gave, till it hurt, he gave his blood. See, we who are under tyranny can only be set free by the ransom price. And the ransom price was life. He was saying in business, ROI, return on investment. Basically what it means is when you put your money in an investment, you do so with the hope that you'll get a good or great return on your investment. And so we see Jesus, the one who gave out of his poverty, the one who gave his blood, the one who gave his very life. And the return on his investment was us. And he was happy to do it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame. See, the reason that we can give up on all of our stuff is because we get the treasure that is beyond Christ. See, we live in a symbiotic relationship with Jesus Christ, with life. But it's commensualistic. See, we get the deepest desires of our heart, and Jesus Christ gets us. He's the slipper that fits. So, we must give our heart to Christ. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the one that you've been looking for all of your life? If you do, if you know the love of Christ, it's only then you can let go. We let go so we can hold on. The shackles are the only ones that can truly set us free is becoming a slave to Jesus Christ. Because he is faithful with your love. And so he gave it all, all to him I So we must give it all. If you're a non-Christian, you need to make a decision sometime in your life. Who will I serve? Who will I bow down to? Every God has a cross. If you're a Christian and you find yourself living in neurosis, a neurotic life, maybe take a look and see what is struggling to get up on that throne to take the place of this one that you gave your life to. For the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So be obsessive. Be ambitious. For the things of heaven Take hold of the one who took hold of you. Because we can only be free from the tyranny of things when we bow down to the Lordship of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that you free us, our stubborn, selfish,
foolish hearts from the things of this world that would drag us down and kill us. Lord, instead you say, come to me, all who are weary and heaven laden, and I will give you rest. The yoke that you place upon us as our master leads us to freedom. Lord, give us the vision to understand the great gift of your blood, the purchase price of our life. Help us to loosen our hands on our mammon that so uh, occupies our mind. Help us to taste and see and to live life to the fullest, knowing that our inheritance is kept in heaven and will never spoil or fade or be stolen. Lord, we love you. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.